0: turn your Bible now to Deuteronomy chapter 6 as we continue in this series. A few weeks ago, my wife and I went to see Samson at Sight and Sound Theater, and I was reminded of how God gave Samson's parents just a few commands, that there were to be the rule of Samson's life, that he was to abstain from drinking strong drink, eating unclean food, and cutting his hair in the fulfillment of a Nazarite vow to express his loyalty and devotion to God. And I So I thought about this passage, I'm reminded as well that our first parents were given one command, not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, as a test, as an expression of loyalty and devotion. And I believe uh, God likes to keep things simple and clear for his people. And as we come to this text, we come to what has traditionally been called the Shema, which comes from the Hebrew verb to hear, do you hear this one great command that rules all others? To so he who has an ear to hear, listen to God's word. Deuteronomy 6, verses 1 through 9. Now this is the commandment. The statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This is God's holy and inspired word. Father, thank you for giving us clear direction from your word. And we pray that you would make your word clear to us tonight. Help us to understand. Help us to apply. We might grow more in the likeness of Christ in whose name we do pray. Amen. Amen. We live in a society governed by the rule of law, and that is a good thing. You can look back to the founding documents written by our forefathers uh, that established the principles of democracy and uh, checks and balances that we enjoy as uh, an, as a democratic nation. But as you look back over America's history, I believe you can see a history of what began as very simple has grown more and more Complicated, and I take the view that, as America has further and further drifted and abandoned its judeo Christian roots, you, you find inevitably the proliferation of rules uh, that the more and more rules have to be established to govern behavior that moving from the Bill of Rights and a few amendments and foundational documents now to, to study law. Re- requires lots and lots and lots of education, that the lawyers now have to specialize just to interpret portions of law because life has become so complicated and, and have drift, drifted from the simplicity of what was originally intended. And, you know, if you could summarize what, what is the basic rule and law that should govern society, is it not love your neighbor? Well, in an age of confusion, we find ourselves uh, among a people driven more and more by the love of self. That uh, It it would seem that in our society that too many influences, too many opinions, too many voices are steering people away from the good intentions of God uh, that would govern house and home and society as a whole. And as the rule of God's law, has less and less restraining power over public behavior. I believe that believers have to more and more appropriate God's word to govern and direct our lives in a manner pleasing to him as we find ourselves surrounded by pressures against God's word. And so tonight, for the sake of simplicity and clarity, we have one command, a a command that we can unpack by the rule of law, the rule of love, and the rule of legacy understand God's will and purpose for us. You remember that uh, Moses uh, was given Ten Commandments uh, by divine revelation on Mount Sinai. And uh, these principal commands are the foundation of the Mosaic Law. And as you read further into Exodus and Leviticus, you find uh, the, the proliferation of case law, which is the unpacking of the basic Ten Principles, that God had given to his people. And so you have things like the command to build a parapet, a, a railing structure around the roof of a house to protect people from falling off to their harm, or or the command to fence in a wild bull that has a tendency to gore people. Well, that flows out of the sixth commandment, Y'all shall, you shall not murder, either intentionally or by way of neglect. And um, you have other various laws against various kinds of sexual immorality and uh, unpacking the seventh commandment, uh, which reveals God's standard, his will for intimate human relations. But as we come to verse 5 here, this one chief command, it, it's, it very simply helps us to understand God's rule for faith in practice. Now, many scholars will contend that Deuteronomy 6 is largely the exposition of the first command. You shall have no other gods but the Lord your God. And God's chief concern in the first command is loyalty. Loyalty to himself, not only for his own glory, but for his people's good. Because polytheism is brutal. That that submitting to the willy-nilly whims of false gods is treacherous and murderous. And so we have one God who has given one clear command. And notice even in verse 1 how Moses refers to now, this is the commandment, the singular, but then it unpacks it the statutes and the rules. But this, out of this one command flows all kinds of uh, secondary uh, guidelines, statutes, and rules and principles for living. And uh, as we understand this foundation for our faith, it, the, the central thing is a matter of allegiance. Uh, that, that we express our trust and obedience and loyalty to the one true God. And also it serves to help us focus, to drown out the other voices, to stop our ears from listening to alternative worldviews and expressions of how to live. And you and I need to further cut out the distractions and temptations that would shift our allegiance away from the one true God who created us and redeemed us. Now, A view of history will reveal that the gods of Egypt and the Greeks and the Romans cared very little about their people's behavior, though they did care about loyalty. And as long as patrons served their gods and made sacrifice to their gods, their moral lives were largely excusable. And we have a God, unlike the gods of the nations, we have a God who both served us— and made sacrifice for us, that not only requires our loyalty in return, but also requires changed lives. God does care about behavior. He does care about our moral lives, our actions. That, that faith is not just a matter of outer behavior, but a principle of inner conviction. How we live matters. And to put it simply, uh, God calls his people to love what he loves, and to hate what he hates as an expression of loyalty and fidelity and conformity to his will. And so all these commands in verses 1 through 3, uh, to do them, to fear the Lord your God, to teach these things to your children, um, are are rooted in the the ultimate command of God. And it's based on our promise uh, that that if we would be careful to do them, it will go well with you, uh, that you will prosper, uh, that God is holding out promise to His people, uh, promising a land filled with milk and honey to cause them to multiply and prosper and flourish. And it's true that God desires to bless His people, and He gives us His law to provide the structure, the guidelines, the boundaries uh, to, to conform our will and our desires in ways that lead to flourishing and uh, living life well for His glory. My sons and I love the game of baseball. If you know anything about baseball, there's lots of rules. Uh, In fact, there are so many rules in baseball. I'm not, after 10 years of teaching and coaching, I'm not sure I know all the rules yet. Uh, I'm still learning them. But, you know, the fundamental rules have to do with strike zones and foul lines. And when you're teaching baseball to children, uh, you have extra rules. Things like pitch count limits to protect arms, various safety restrictions uh, to protect children from collisions and batted balls and things. Um, and o- over the years, as I've served as a coach and sometimes an umpire, uh, there is one basic rule that stands above all the others, and that is to respect the coach, uh, to respect the umpire, to, to listen, to adhere to authority, and in the Little League Pledge, respecting authority is, is the number one principle out of, out of the pledge, and, but I've also recognized as I'm coaching or, or uh, umpiring a game, it's incumbent upon me to build rapport, uh, to, to win the respect and the listening ear of, of my players. And as my players learn to put their faith in me, they learn the game and put skills into practice. This year, I coached a team of nine and, nine and ten-year-olds, and I had four brand-new players, who had never played before. And so I had to teach them things like when to leave the base and when to get back to the base, and the difference between tagging out and forcing out and other details of the game. And sometimes they listened, and sometimes they didn't uh, listen so well. But whenever I'm teaching children the nature of baseball, I try to simplify things. Uh, That Basically, in a game, the goal is to throw strikes, to make outs, and to get on base. And the teams that normally do those the best is normally the team uh, that, that wins. And so the team that listens to its coach uh, and, and puts into practice these rules and, pr- and disciplines uh, usually uh, prospers and flourishes. And so just as in life and in following the Word of God, there is one chief command that rules all others, that as we conform ourselves to God's standard, uh, we flourish and we prosper. You'll recall a couple of figures from the Bible who are outstanding examples of faith. Remember Phinehas, the son of Aaron, who with great faith and loyalty and zeal for the Lord speared a man, an Israelite, and his Moabite liaison, and in so doing stopped a great plague and established and secured uh, the Levitical priesthood in his line for uh, all, many, many generations. Think of the Roman centurion who sent a request to Jesus to come and heal his servant, believing that Jesus could heal uh, his sick servant. But as Jesus was on the way, the centurion came to his senses. He didn't want to bother Jesus, nor did he want to taint him by having Jesus come into the home of an unclean Gentile, but expressed tremendous faith when he said, Lord, you can merely say the command from a distance, and my servant will be healed. And Jesus, with great amazement, declared, I have not seen such great faith in all of Israel. And then on another occasion, Jesus observed two men in the temple, one a very pious but self-righteous Pharisee, the other a tax collector, bowing his head to the ground, beating his breast, declaring, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And it was the latter who went home justified judged our Lord. Biblical faith and practice is a matter of zeal, of loyalty and humility. And as we think of these characters, as we think of this command, we have to make inventory, take inventory of our faith. Is my faith characterized by zeal or slackness? Is it focused or distracted? Is, is my faith characterized by checking off lists or an expression of deep devotion and allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. I think many of us can slip into patterns and habits. We can slip into what I call discipleship gaps. When we go through seasons of misplaced faith, or perhaps uh, fall into the pit of serving begrudgingly, rather than joyfully to the Lord, if we're honest with ourselves, there are seasons of life where we resent the Lord where we doubt him, where we merely go through the motions when our heart is not truly in it. And I believe that in those seasons if we diagnose our hearts properly, we realize we're worshiping the wrong God. We're worshiping a, a mere shadow of the biblical God. We're failing to recognize God in all of his beauty, in his glory, his power, and his steadfast love for us in Christ. And we need a faith renewal. We need a reencounter with the one true living God who is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. And it's in such seasons that we need to trade in the merits of our own righteousness and embrace the merit of Christ's righteousness alone. And as we do that, it enables us to trust God with his law and move on with this one great command, the rule of love. Many of you know that the word Islam means to submit, that a reading, in a reading of the Quran, reveals that uh, it's God Allah wants to be obeyed. Allah's concern is not so much to be loved, nor does he love his patrons and followers, and that is a vivid contrast to the God of Scripture, the true and living God of all human history. And as verse 4 clearly states, God is one, that there is one true and living God who is revealed in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, a interpersonal, relational God who has existed before time and space and all of creation. And he is the God before whom every knee shall bow. He is the one God who tolerates no rivals. But not like a petty dictator, nor like a thin-skinned presidential candidate, no, this God will yield his glory to no other because to do so would be unspeakable evil, turning away from his own glory, his own goodness and power that is truly for his people's eternal good. He is not the God of confusion or frustration, but the God of strength and beauty and simplicity, the one God who has given, this, given us this one clear command. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your might. It doesn't say just obey God, or just serve God, or just fear God, though we should do all those things. But love him. Love him alone who is worthy of our deepest affections. Love him in response to the one who has shown us steadfast love. Deuteronomy 10 expresses it well when Moses writes, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your own good, for God's glory and our own good. Well, how is it that we are to love? Will you unpack uh, verse 5. And it's with our heart and with our soul and with our might. And the heart in Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew language, refers to the inner man, the will, the affections. In, in modern day science, we might call it the limbic system, uh, the, the part of our brain that, 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 that regulates the adrenaline flow and the, the impulse, the, the immediate expression of our, of our will and reaction to situations. Um, when, when there's in situations where you have little time to reason, that you act out of impulse, out of the core of your convictions and beliefs. And we also understand uh, from traditional historical practice and from modern science that the heart, the, the limbic part of the brain, has to be trained. And it it's trained by, by daily decision-making, that, that each and every day we make little deposits, little investments that, that train our thoughts and our desires and, um, and to build conviction, it has to be built up by regular practice. And, and we actually can mold our heart by our convictions by establishing the object of our desire. And if, if God is the object of our desire, then literally our heart beats for him. But anything else that we uh, make the object of our desire, whether it's money or Approval or sensual pleasure, uh, appearances or material successes, ministry successes, or any other comfort, yielding to such temptation, our heart molds in loyalty to the object of our love. You perhaps have been on a college campus or other type of campus where you know usually there are paved walkways. That, that are designed for people to walk on, to go, to stay off the grass, to go from class to class or building to building. But, but usually there's a, a nice well-worn path through the grass that is no longer grass, it's just dirt. That's a shortcut across campus, uh, as people tend to do. And, uh, and our habits and patterns are like those well-worn paths, that, that God has given us a pathway to walk on, And if we will heed it, if we will walk on it, we will build patterns and habits in conformity to God's will. But when we go our own way, we establish our own habits and patterns in the way of the flesh, in the way of yielding to temptations that uh, lead us further astray from God's will and purpose for our lives. Well, secondly, we're to love God with our soul. The soul is the self, the seat of emotions, our passions. It can also mean breath. So that every living creature that has breath is a soul in the, in the Hebrew mind. It also can refer to the desires and cravings. So it, it overlaps quite a bit with the idea of the heart. And uh, you may know that, you know, decades ago, John Piper wrote a book called Desiring God, establishing a, a fruitful international ministry. Uh, of helping believers to conform their desires more and more to the object and uh, the worship and devotion of God. And we find ourselves living in a consumer culture that is designed to to titillate desire, uh, to advertise, and to help build brand loyalty, to entice us uh, to uh, be devoted to particular brands and products. And uh, the Bible would call us to love the one who alone can satisfy our heart's deepest desires. And our, and our desires have to be trained. And we, we can be compelled from Scripture to train our desires to not be satisfied with anything less than God's best for us. Well, thirdly, we are to love the Lord our God with all of our might. This refers to exertion, uh, vigor, and force, and um, it refers to more than just good intentions. It means follow through, following through and acting out what we profess to believe. And, you know, that the the man who intends uh, to give his wife a nice gift for her anniversary uh, is not communicating the same love as the man who actually follows through. Uh, The man who actually makes her dinner and presents flowers and gives her a gift uh, actually uh, acts and demonstrates might and exertion, uh, expressing his love for her. So yes, men, it is, it's, the, the thought does not, it's not the thought that counts. It's the actual exertion and the follow through. So might refers to resisting temptation. It means loving and pursuing difficult people. It means restraining the tongue to speak only what is edifying and building others up. It means getting up and going to corporate worship like all of you have done this evening, even when you don't feel like it. One of my favorite examples of exertion is the friends of the paralytic man who dig a hole in in the ceiling, the roof of a home, to lower their paralytic friend down in front of Jesus that he may be healed. And Jesus rewards their faith heals the lame man and declares that his sins are forgiven in response to the exertion of living faith in the Lord God. And so in verse 6, Moses writes, And these words that I give you today shall be on your heart. They are to weigh, they are to press down in our hearts. We are a forgetful people. Something goes in one ear and out the other. And so we need more than just hearing God's word. We need meditation and memorization of God's word. You know, an actor preparing for a stage performance will memorize his lines, but he won't merely memorize his lines. He also will learn the character. And the most brilliant actors on stage or on screen become the person that they are trying to represent. That's the idea here, to memorize, to internalize God's word that transform our person and our character, that we become more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. It's it's the intensity that comes when a man or woman's preparing for an interview and thinking of questions and thinking of ways to respond to the interviewer. It's like a man preparing to ask a woman to marry him or to ask her father's permission. You, you meditate on the words that you're going to say as you prepare for that encounter. So that, that's the idea here as we think about that, that these words would be on our hearts. When application to these things, uh, in order to apply these things to our hearts, I, I believe that what we're really after here is, is we desire wholeness and intimacy, uh, that our deep, one of our deepest desires is the desire for wholeness, recognizing that we are broken, recognizing that we can't fix ourselves, that we need God and we need others. And so in our desire for wholeness, that I'm desiring God to, to make me complete in Christ. And oftentimes, if you're like me, who has the gift of making things more complicated than they need to be, we have the simplicity of God's word to guide our hearts, and our devotion towards wholeness and intimacy with Christ. I believe that all of us by nature, we, we want deep intimacy and fellowship with God, but we oftentimes don't know how, or we seek it in the wrong way on our own terms. And it's not uncommon for us to want rules, to want regulations, when God is beckoning us who, who wants relationship who wants loyalty and vulnerability, that he wants a passionate love relationship with his people who are willing to receive his goodness, his grace, and uh, his steadfast love for us. I believe uh, Martin Luther once said it, something uh, very simply, love God and do what you want. Love God and do what you want as more and more our hearts are given in responding to the love of God, everything else falls into place as we're guiding and directing our desires and passions towards the will of our God. Well, lastly, if we would consider the rule of law and the rule of love, verses 7 through 9 establish for us a rule of legacy as we unpack this one great command that that this command is not just for us, but for those who come after us. It's not something we merely hoard, but to share with others. That God's love is inexhaustible. It can't be diminished by passing it on or investing in others. So we have this application towards children. He says in verse 7, to teach these things diligently to our children. And the verb here refers to the wetting and sharpening of an arrow uh, or, or a sword. That the idea is impressing these truths so deeply upon the mind and heart of a child that it's like we're fashioning him or her to be a weapon or an instrument in the Lord's hand. And so talk about these things. Talk about God's statutes. When you sit at home, when you walk along the way, when you lie down at night, when you rise up in the morning, you know, Moses gives all these vivid uh, pictures of binding these truths as signs on the hands and bands on the eyes. And in Jewish tradition, Orthodox pious Jews would, would make phylacteries, which were like leather strips with little boxes that held Scripture that they would actually put on their bodies, uh, not like tattoos, but, but hanging ornaments uh, that held uh, the words of Scripture. And they would p- place it on their doorposts and on the gates of the city and the home to be pervasive, to be public, to be a permanent reminder of God's enduring word. To trying to live out that that man does not live by bread alone, but in every word that comes from the mouth of God. You know, for the pious Jewish household in Jesus' day, that piety was not just merely going to worship on the Sabbath or the synagogue or even temple three times a year. It wasn't even just about school and training young people, it was a way of life. The word, the word of God was like daily manna. In the spirit of Psalm one. The righteous man who, uh, who does not walk in the way of the wicked or sit in the seat of mockers, um, uh, but, but dwells upon the word of God night and day. And so we, we live in a society that is so good at compartmentalizing, uh, of, of setting aside, well, what, you know, the religion and piety is a private thing, but your public life has to do with work and employment and economics and everything else. We have to fight that. We have to resist that. We have to find ways to integrate and meditate God's word and prayer throughout our lives, throughout our daily walk. And so making time in the morning, in the evening, at meals, in conversation with God's people, uh, is, is, there's really practical ways uh, that we make regular conversation and teachable moments uh, rooted around God's word. So how do we get practical with these things, especially with children and young people in your home or here at the church uh, in our teaching uh, opportunities and venues? Um, some families do evening devotions, and those are good things. Uh, our family, uh, we, we, we're on again, off again in terms of having regular practices, but trying to get in the Word and in prayer and worship and singing together. Uh, these are things that ha- you have to work at it. Uh, they're, not, they're not easy uh, to, to maintain with, with a busy schedule. Uh, establishing prayer in the mornings, in the evenings, at meal times, at bedtimes, in the car. Turning off the radio, doing things that help to emphasize our connection with our God. You know, for me, with my children, I try to seek intentional seasons of discipleship, especially with my older ones. We'll study a book of the Bible together over the summertime uh, or over the break time just so that we're in the Word together, engaging it uh, in an intimate way. And I think for those with younger children at home, I, it's very vitally important to take time to listen to your children, uh, to, to engage with their little conflicts and frustrations, uh, and to give them godly correction. And yes, you know, my children need lots of correction. And I have a choice, when there's a conflict, to either engage with it or to ignore it and dismiss it. And if I ignore it and dismiss it, I'm wasting an opportunity uh, to give them Godly instruction. Even as exhausting as it is, p- applying discipline and correction in a God-centered way is vital for their training. But what are some warnings with children and uh, training children? Well, well, one of the biggest warnings is legalism. Uh, m- much by way of instruction for children even the church can be very legalistic, just very focused on behavior, just, just getting them to behave and conform outwardly without really dealing with the heart, without really talking much about faith and repentance. And I believe that one of the, the parents' chief duties is to nurture a spirit of repentance and a teachable, tender heart. More important than outward behavior, more important than conformity to in respectability is the nature of the heart. Is it tender? Is it repentant? Uh, are our children growing in a deeper awareness of their own sin? Where, where a child is realizing more and more, I am a sinner and in desperate need of Christ. And, and that has to be modeled from the parents. That the parents have to be willing to say, I'm a sinner and I'm in desperate need of Christ. And I that when parents model that, express that, demonstrate that, that children follow when they realize, wow, mommy and daddy need Jesus too. I realize that I'm a sinner and, and hopelessly lost apart from his saving grace. Because we want believers, not just behaviors. We want possessors of true faith and not mere professors of faith. We want owners of the faith, not just renters of the faith. And so lastly, by way of application, keep rules to a minimum. Uh, Do not proliferate rules in your household. And also distinguish between God's rules and my household rules. We have a few household rules, but they're not as important as God's rules. Uh, You have more weight and importance and consequences uh, to maintaining and obeying God's standards, his rules. And then modeling repentance, confession, apologies, and forgiveness to our children is absolutely vital. The scriptures say that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature before God and men. We believe that Jesus was tutored and instructed. We see him at the age of 12 at the temple, expressing wisdom and asking questions that were profound. He was in the Word. He was in the Word on a regular basis at home and in the synagogue. And when he came of age and began his public ministry, when he was asked one day, which is the greatest command... Which one did he quote? The one we're studying tonight. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And the second is like it to love your neighbor as yourself. I believe that Jesus was a one command man, he was driven deeply by a loyalty and a passion for his Father's glory. And when he passed on to his disciples on the night that he was betrayed, he said, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. You know, following Christ is not fundamentally about rules. It's about love. It's about responding to the love of God demonstrated by the one who laid down his life for us, the one who fulfilled the rules, who obeyed the commands who accomplish everything that you and I fail at as an expression of his love and sacrifice for a weak and needy people. And lastly, I remind you that heaven will be a place without rules. Heaven is a place where there is no sin nature, where there is no brokenness and fallenness, where we need no police officers, where we need no correction officers, Heaven is a place without sin, without corruption, without desires going astray. And so as we live this life, as we continue our journey, when we keep our focus on the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has conquered, the one who has gone before us, and may we, by the Spirit's help, love the Lord our God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Father, thank you for making things simple and clear. And forgive us for the way we make things more complicated than they need to be. We pray that you would impress these truths deeply upon our hearts, that you would chisel us and mold us and conform us, that you would wet us and sharpen us as arrows and instruments and weapons in the hands of the Lord God, and make us a people but that live for the praise of your glory to testify to your grace and your power. And may we go from this place as people who live joyfully in loving service to the Lord our God. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.